0: I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Good to have you with me. Last week, we heard the first part of William Somerset Maugham's story, Daisy. In it, a young woman from a comfortable but stifling background runs off with her lover, only to be abandoned by him and cruelly rejected by her family. In desperation, living in poverty, it is suggested that she becomes a prostitute. So far, a classic Victorian morality story. But as we begin the second part of the story, to everyone's surprise, we find that Daisy has taken a career in the theatre, and is to appear in a nearby town. Next evening, half-Blackstable took the special train to Turkenbury, which had been put on for the pantomime, and there was such a crowd at the doors that the impresario half thought of extending his stay. The Reverend Charles Gray and Mrs. Gray were there, also James, their nephew. Mr. Gray had some scruples about going to a theatre, but his wife said a pantomime was quite different. Besides, curiosity may gently enter even a clerical bosom. Miss Reed was there in black satin with her friend Mrs. Howlett. Mrs. Griffith sat in the middle of the stalls, flanked by her dutiful son and her daughter-in-law, and George searched for female beauty with his opera-glass, which is quite the proper thing to do on such occasions. The curtain went up, and the villagers of Dick Whittington's native place sang a chorus. "'Now she's coming,' whispered George. All those blackstable hearts stood still, and Daisy, as Dick Whittington, bounded on the stage, in flesh-coloured tights with particularly scanty trunks, and her bodice rather low. The vicar's nephew sniggered, and Mrs. Gray gave him a reproachful glance. All the other blackstable people looked pained. Miss Reed blushed. But as Daisy waved her hand and gave a kick, the audience broke out into prolonged applause. Turkenbury people have no moral sense, although Turkenbury is a cathedral city. Daisy began to sing. I'm a jolly sort of boy, to Lol, and I don't care a damn who knows it. I'm fond of every joy, to Lol, as you may very well suppose it. Tololol, lol." Then the audience— the audience of a cathedral city, as Mr. Gray said, took up the refrain Tololol Tololol. However, the piece went on to the bitter end, and Dick Whittington appeared in many different costumes and sang many songs, and kicked many kicks, till he was finally made Lord Mayor in tights. Ah, it was an evening of bitter humiliation for Blackstable people. Some of them, as Miss Reed said, behaved scandalously they really appeared to enjoy it, and even George laughed at some of the jokes the cat made, though his wife and his mother sternly reproved him. "'I'm ashamed of you, George, laughing at such a time,' they said. Afterward the Greys and Miss Reed got into the same railway carriage with the Griffiths. "'Well, Mrs. Griffiths,' said the vicar's wife, "'what do you think of your daughter now?' "'Mrs. Gray,' replied Mrs. Griffiths solemnly, "'I haven't got a daughter.' "'That's a very proper spirit in which to look at it,' answered the lady. "'She was simply covered with diamonds.' "'They must have been worth a fortune,' said Miss Reed. "'Oh, I dare say they're not real,' said Mrs. Gray. "'At that distance, and with the limelight, you know, it's very difficult to tell.' "'I'm sorry to say,' said Mrs. Griffith, with some asperity, feeling the doubt almost an affront to her, "'I'm sorry to say that I know they're real.' The ladies coughed discreetly scenting a little scandalous mystery which they must get out of Mrs. Griffith at another opportunity. My nephew James says she earns at least thirty or forty pounds a week. Miss Reed sighed at the thought of such depravity. It's very sad, she remarked, to think of such things happening to a fellow creature. But what I can't understand, said Mrs. Gray next morning at the breakfast-table, is how she got into such a position. We all know that at one time she was to be seen in— well, in a very questionable place, at an hour which left no doubt about her—her means of livelihood. I must say I thought she was quite lost.' "'Oh, well, I can tell you that easily enough,' replied her nephew. "'She's being kept by Sir Somebody Something, and he's running the show for her. James, I wish you would be more careful about your language. It's not necessary to call a spade a spade, and you can surely find a less objectionable expression to explain the relationship between the persons.' don't you remember his name? No, I've heard it, but I've really forgotten. I see in this week's Turkenbury Times that there's a Sir Herbert Owsley-Faroam staying at the George right now. That's it, Sir Herbert Owsley-Faroam. How sad! I'll look him out in Burke.' She took down the reference book, which was kept beside the clergy list. "'Dear me, he's only twenty-nine, and he's got a house in Cavendish Square and a house in the country. He must be very well-to-do, and he belongs to the Junior Carleton and two other clubs, and he's got a sister who's married to Lord Edward Lake. Mrs. Gray closed the book and held it with a finger to mark the place like a Bible. It's very sad to think of the dissipation of so many members of the aristocracy. It set such a bad example to the lower classes. They showed old Griffith a portrait of Daisy in her theatrical costume. "'Has she come to that?' he said. He looked at it a moment, then savagely tore it to pieces and flung it in the fire. "'Oh, my God!' he groaned. He could not get out of his head the picture, the shamelessness of the costume, the smile, the evident prosperity and content. He felt now that he had lost his daughter indeed. All these years he had kept his heart open to her, and his heart had bled when he thought of her starving, ragged, perhaps dead. He had thought of her begging her bread and working her beautiful hands to the bone in some factory. He had always hoped that some day she could return to him, purified by the fire of suffering. But she was prosperous, and happy, and rich. She was applauded, worshipped, the papers were full of her praise. Old Griffith was filled with a feeling of horror, of immense repulsion. She was flourishing in her sin, and he loathed her. He had been so ready to forgive her when he thought her despairing and unhappy, but now he was implacable. Three months later Mrs. Griffith came to her husband, trembling with excitement, and handed him a cutting from a paper. We hear that Miss Daisy Griffith, who earned golden opinions in the province's last winter with her Dick Whittington, is about to be married to Sir Herbert Owsley Farrowham, her friends, and their name is Legion, will join with us in the heartiest congratulations. He returned the paper without answering. "'Well?' asked his wife. "'It is nothing to me. I don't know either of the parties mentioned.' At that moment there was a knock at the door, and Mrs. Gray and Miss Reed entered, having met on the doorstep. Mrs. Griffith at once regained her self-possession. "'Have you heard the news, Mrs. Griffith?' said Miss Reed." "'Do you mean about the marriage of Sir Herbert Owsley Farrowham?' She mouthed the long word. "'Yes,' replied the two ladies together. "'It's nothing to me. I have no daughter, Mrs. Gray.' "'I'm sorry to hear you say that, Mrs. Griffith,' said Mrs. Gray, very stiffly. "'I think you show a most unforgiving spirit.' "'Yes,' said Miss Reed. "'I can't help thinking that if you'd treated poor Daisy in a—well, in a more Christian way, you might have saved her from a great deal.' "'Yes,' added Miss Gray. "'I must say that all through I don't think you've shown a very nice spirit at all. I remember poor dear Daisy quite well, and she had a quite sweet character, and I'm sure that if she'd been treated a little more gently none of all this would have happened.' Mrs. Gray and Miss Reed looked at Mrs. Griffith sternly and reproachfully. They felt themselves like God Almighty judging a miserable sinner. Mrs. Griffith was extremely angry, she felt that she was being blamed most unjustly, and, moreover, she was not used to being blamed. "'I'm sure you're very kind, Mrs. Gray and Miss Reed, but I must take the liberty of saying that I know best what my daughter was. Mrs. Griffith, all I say is this—you are not a good mother.' "'Excuse me, madam,' said Mrs. Griffith, having grown red with anger, but Mrs. Gray interrupted. "'I am truly sorry to have to say it to one of my parishioners, but you are not a good Christian.' and we all know that your husband's business isn't going at all well, and I think it's a judgment of providence.' "'Very well, ma'am,' said Mrs. Griffith, getting up. "'You are at liberty to think what you please, but I shall not come to church again. Mr. Friend, the Baptist minister, has asked me to go to his chapel, and I'm sure he won't treat me like that.' "'I'm sure we don't want you to come to church in that spirit, Mrs. Griffith. That's not the spirit with which you can please God, Mrs. Griffith.' I can quite imagine now why Daisy ran away. You're no Christian. I'm sure I don't care what you think, Mrs. Gray, but I'm as good as you are." "'Will you open the door for me, Mrs. Griffith?' said Mrs. Gray, with outraged dignity. "'Oh, you can open it yourself, Mrs. Gray,' replied Mrs. Griffith." Mrs. Griffith went to see her daughter-in-law. "'I've never been spoken to in that way before,' she said. "'Fancy me not being a Christian, I'm a better Christian than Mrs. Gray any day. I like Mrs. Gray with the air she gives herself, as if she'd got anything to boast about. No, Edith, I've said it, and I'm not the woman to go back on what I've said. I'm not going to church again. From this day I go to chapel.' But George came to see his mother a few days later. "'Look here, mother. Edith says you'd better forgive Daisy now.' "'George!' cried his mother. "'I've only done my duty all through.' and if you think it's my duty to forgive my daughter now she's going to enter the bonds of holy matrimony, I will do so. No one can say that I'm not a Christian, and I haven't said the Lord's Prayer night and morning ever since I remember, for nothing. Mrs. Griffith sat down to write, looking up to her son for inspiration. "'Dearest Daisy,' he said. "'No, George,' she replied, "'I'm not going to cringe to my daughter, although she is going to be a lady.' I shall simply say, Daisy. The letter was very dignified, gently reproachful, for Daisy had undoubtedly committed certain peccadilloes, although she was going to be a baronet's wife, but still it was completely forgiving, and Mrs. Griffith signed herself, your loving and forgiving mother, whose heart you nearly broke. But the letter was not answered, and a couple of weeks later, The same Sunday paper contained an announcement of the date of the marriage and the name of the church. Mrs. Griffith wrote a second time. My darling daughter, I am much surprised at receiving no answer to my long letter. All is forgiven. I should so much like to see you again before I die, and to have you married from your father's house. All is forgiven. Your loving mother, Mary Ann Griffith." This time the letter was returned, unopened. "'George!' cried Mrs. Griffith. "'She's got her back up. "'And the wedding's to-morrow,' he replied. "'It's most awkward, George. "'I've told all the Blackstable people that I've forgiven her, "'and that Sir Herbert has written to say he wants to make my acquaintance, "'and I've got a new dress on purpose to go to the wedding. "'Oh, she's a cruel and exasperating thing, George. "'I never liked her. "'You were always my favourite. "'Well, I do think she's not acting as she should,' replied George, "'and I'm sure I don't know what's to be done. But Mrs. Griffith was a woman who made up her mind quickly. I shall go up to town and see her myself, George, and you must come too. "'I'll come up with you, mother, but you'd better go to her alone, because I expect she's not forgotten the last time I saw her.' They caught a train immediately, and having arrived at Daisy's house, Mrs. Griffith went up the steps, while george waited in a neighbouring public-house the door was opened by a smart maid much smarter than the vicarage maid at blackstable as mrs griffith remarked with satisfaction on finding that daisy was at home she sent up a message to ask if a lady could see her the maid returned would you give your name madam miss griffith cannot see without mrs griffith had foreseen the eventuality and unwilling to give her card had written another little letter, using Edith as amanuensis, so that Daisy should at least open it. She sent it up. In a few minutes the maid came down again. There is no answer, and she opened the door for Mrs. Griffith to go out. That lady turned very red. Her first impulse was to make a scene and call the housemaid to witness how Daisy treated her own mother but immediately she thought how undignified she would appear in the maid's eyes, so she went out like a lamb. She told George all about it as they sat in the private bar of the public-house, drinking a little Scotch whisky. "'All I can say,' she remarked, "'is that I hope she'll never live to repent it. Fancy treating her own mother like that. But I shall go to the wedding. I don't care. I will see my own daughter married.' That had been her great ambition and she would have crawled before Daisy to be asked to the ceremony. But George dissuaded her from going uninvited. There were sure to be one or two Blackstable people present, and they would see that she was there as a stranger. The humiliation would be too great. "'I think she's an ungrateful girl,' said Mrs. Griffith, as she gave way, and allowed George to take her back to Blackstable." But the prestige of the Griffiths diminished, Everyone in Blackstable came to the conclusion that the new Lady Ousley Faroam had been very badly treated by her relatives, and many young ladies said that they would have done just the same in her place. Also, Mrs. Gray induced her husband to ask Griffith to resign his church wardenship. "'You know, Mr. Griffith,' said the vicar deprecatingly, "'now that your wife goes to chapel, I don't think we can have you as churchwarden any longer. And besides, I don't think you've behaved to your daughter in a Christian way." It was in the carpenter's shop. The business had dwindled till Griffith only kept one man and a boy. He put aside the saw he was using. "'What I've done to my daughter I'm willing to take the responsibility for. I ask no one's advice, and I want no one's opinion. And if you think I'm not fit to be churchwarden, you can find someone else better.' "'Why don't you make it up with your daughter, Griffith? Mind your own business.' The carpenter had brooded and brooded over his sorrow till now his daughter's name roused him to fury. He had even asserted a little authority over his wife, and she dared not mention her daughter before him. Daisy's marriage had seemed like the consummation of her shame. It was vice riding triumphant in a golden chariot. But the name of Lady Owsley Faroam was hardly ever out of her mother's lips, and she spent a good deal more money in her dress to keep up her dignity. "'Well, that's another new dress you've got on,' said a neighbour. "'Yes,' said Mrs. Griffith, complacently. "'You see, we're in quite a different position now. I have to think of my daughter, Lady Owsley Farrowham. I don't want her to be ashamed of her mother. I had such a nice long letter from her the other day. She's so happy with Sir Herbert, and Sir Herbert's so good to her.' "'Oh, I didn't know you were—' "'Oh, yes. Of course, she was a little—' Well, a little wild when she was a girl, but I've forgiven that. It's her father won't forgive her. He always was a hard man, and he never loved her as I did. She wants to come and stay with me, but he won't let her. Isn't it cruel of him? I should so like to have Lady Owsley Farooq's down here." But at last the crash came. To pay for the new things which Mrs Griffith felt needful to preserve her dignity, she had drawn on her husband's savings in the bank, and he had been drawing on them himself for the last four years without his wife's knowledge, for as his business declined he had been afraid to give her less money than usual, and every week had made up the sum by taking something out of the bank. George only earned a pound a week, he had been made a clerk to a coal merchant by his mother who thought that more genteel than carpentering and after his marriage he had constantly borrowed from his parents. At last Mrs. Griffith learnt to her dismay that their savings had come to an end completely. She had a talk with her husband, and found out that he was earning almost nothing. He talked of sending his only remaining workmen away and moving into a smaller place. If he kept his one or two customers, they might just manage to make both ends meet. Mrs. Griffith was burning with anger, she looked at her husband, sitting in front of her with his helpless look. "'You fool!' she said. She thought of herself coming down in the world, living in a poky little house away from the high street, unable to buy new dresses, unnoticed by the chief people of Blackstable, she who had always held up her head with the best of them. George and Edith came in, and she told them, hurling contemptuous sarcasms at her husband, He sat looking at them with his pained, unhappy eyes, while they stared back at him as if he were some despicable, noxious beast. "'Why didn't you say how things were going before, Father?' George asked him. He shrugged his shoulders. "'I didn't like to,' he said hoarsely. Those cold, angry eyes crushed him. He felt the stupid, useless fool he saw they thought him. "'I don't know what's to be done,' said George. His wife looked at old Griffith with her hard gray eyes. The sharpness of her features, the firm, clear complexion with all the softness blown out of it by the east winds, expressed the coldest resolution. Father must get Daisy to help. She's got lots of money. She may do it for him. Old Griffith broke suddenly out of his apathy. "'I'd sooner go to the workhouse. I'll never touch a penny of hers. Now then, father.' said Mrs. Griffith, quickly understanding. "'You drop that. You'll have to.' George at the same time got pen and paper and put them before the old man. They stood round him angrily. He stared at the paper. A look of horror came over his face. "'Go on, don't be a fool,' said his wife. She dipped the pen in the ink and handed it to him. Edith's steel-gray eyes were fixed on him, coldly compelling.' Dear Daisy, she began. Father always used to call her Daisy Darling, said George. He'd better put that so as to bring back old times. They talked of him strangely, as if he were absent or had not ears to hear. Very well, replied Edith, and she began again. The old man wrote bewilderedly, as if he were asleep. Daisy Darling. Forgive me. I HAVE BEEN HARD AND CRUEL TOWARDS YOU. ON MY KNEES, I BEG YOUR FORGIVENESS. THE BUSINESS HAS GONE WRONG, AND I AM RUINED. IF YOU DON'T HELP ME, WE SHALL HAVE THE BROKERS IN AND HAVE TO GO TO THE WORKHOUSE. FOR GOD'S SAKE, HAVE MERCY ON ME. YOU CAN'T LET ME STARVE. I KNOW I HAVE SINNED TOWARDS YOU. YOUR BROKEN-HEARTED FATHER. She read through the letter. I think that'll do. Now, the envelope. And she dictated the address. When it was finished, Griffith looked at them with loathing, absolute loathing, but they paid no more attention to him. They arranged to send a telegram first in case she should not open the letter. "'Letter coming, for God's sake, open, in great distress, Father.' George went out immediately to send the wire and post the letter. The letter was sent on a Tuesday, and on Thursday morning a telegram came from Daisy to say she was coming down. Mrs. Griffith was highly agitated. "'I'll go and put on my silk dress,' she said. "'No, Mother, that is a silly thing. Be as shabby as you can.' "'How'll father be?' asked George. "'You'd better speak to him, Edith.' He was called, the stranger in his own house. "'Look here, father. Daisy's coming this morning. Now, you'll be civil, won't you? I'm afraid he'll go and spoil everything,' said Mrs. Griffith, anxiously. At that moment there was a knock at the door. "'It's her!' Griffith was pushed into the back room. Mrs. Griffith hurriedly put on a ragged apron and went to the door. "'Daisy!' she cried, opening her arms. She embraced her daughter and pressed her to her voluminous bosom. "'Oh, Daisy!' Daisy accepted passively the tokens of affection with a little sad smile. She tried not to be unsympathetic. Mrs. Griffith led her daughter into the sitting-room where George and Edith were sitting. George was very white. "'You don't mean to say you walked here?' said Mrs. Griffith, as she shut the front door." "'Fancy that, when you could have had "'all the carriages in Blackstable to drive you about.' "'Welcome to your home again,' said George, "'with somewhat the air of a dissenting minister. "'Oh, George,' she said, "'with the same sad, half-ironical smile, "'allowing herself to be kissed. "'Don't you remember me?' said Edith, coming forward. "'I'm George's wife. "'I used to be Edith Pollitt.' "'Oh, yes,' Daisy put out her hand. "'They all three looked at her, and the women noticed the elegance of her simple dress. She was no longer the merry girl they had known, but a tall, dignified woman, and her great blue eyes were very grave. They were rather afraid of her, but Mrs. Griffith made an effort to be cordial, and at the same time familiar. "'Fancy you being a real lady,' she said. Daisy smiled again. "'Where's father?' she asked. "'In the next room.' They moved towards the door and entered. Old Griffith rose as he saw his daughter, but he did not come towards her. She looked at him a moment, then turned to the others. "'Please leave me alone with Father for a few minutes.' They did not want to, knowing that their presence would restrain him, but Daisy looked at them so firmly that they were obliged to obey. She closed the door behind them. "'Father,' she said, turning towards him. "'They made me write the letter.' he said hoarsely. "'I thought so,' she said. "'Won't you kiss me?' He stepped back as if in repulsion. She looked at him with her beautiful eyes full of tears. "'I'm so sorry I've made you unhappy, but I've been unhappy too. Oh, you don't know what I've gone through. Won't you forgive me?' "'I didn't write the letter,' he repeated hoarsely. "'They stood over me and made me.' Her lips trembled, but with an effort she commanded herself. They looked at one another steadily. It seemed for a very long time. In his eyes was the look of a hunted beast. At last she turned away without saying anything more, and left him. In the next room the three were anxiously waiting. She contemplated them a moment, and then, sitting down, asked about the affairs. They explained how things were. "'I talked to my husband about it,' she said. He's proposed to make you an allowance so that you can retire from business. "'Oh, that's Sir Herbert all over,' said Mrs. Griffith greasily. She knew nothing about him but his name. "'How much do you think you could live on?' asked Daisy. Mrs. Griffith looked at George, and then at Edith. What should they ask? George and Edith exchanged a glance. They were in agonies lest Mrs. Griffith should demand too little. (coughs) "'Well—' said that lady at last, with a little cough of uncertainty. "'In our best years we used to make four pounds a week out of the business, didn't we, George?' "'Quite that,' answered he and his wife, in a breath. "'Then shall I tell my husband that if he forwards you five pounds a week you will be able to live comfortably?' "'Oh, that's very handsome,' said Mrs. Griffith. "'Very well,' said Daisy, getting up. "'You're not going?' cried her mother. "'Yes,' "'Well, that is hard, after not seeing you all these years. But you know best, of course.' "'There's no train up to London for two hours yet,' said George. "'No, I want to take a walk through Blackstable. "'Oh, you'd better drive in your position. "'I prefer to walk. "'Shall George come with you? "'I prefer to walk alone.' Then Mrs. Griffith again enveloped her daughter in her arms, and told her she had always loved her, and that she was her only daughter after which Daisy allowed herself to be embraced by her brother and his wife. Finally they shut the door on her, and watched her from the window walk slowly down the high street. "'If you'd asked it, I believe she'd have gone up to six quid a week,' said George. Daisy walked down the high street slowly, looking at the houses she remembered, and her lips quivered a little. At every step smells blew across to her full of memories— the smell of a tannery, the blood smell of a butcher's shop, the sea odor from a shop of fishermen's clothes. At last she came on to the beach, and in the darkening November day she looked at the booths she knew so well, the boats drawn up for the winter, whose names she knew, whose owners she had known from her childhood. She noticed the new villas built in her absence, and she looked at the grey sea. A sob burst from her but she was very strong, and at once she recovered herself. She turned back and slowly walked up the high street again to the station. The lamps were lighted now, and the street looked as it had looked in her memory through the years. Between the Green Dragon and the Duke of Kent were the same groups of men—farmers, townsfolk, fishermen—talking in the glare of the rival inns, and they stared at her curiously as she passed, a tall figure, closely veiled— she looked at the well-remembered shops, the stationery shop with its old-fashioned fly-blown knick-knacks, the milliners with cheap gaudy hats, the little tailors with his antiquated fashion-plates. At last she came to the station and sat in the waiting-room, her heart full of infinite sadness, the terrible sadness of the past. And she could not shake it off in the train, she could only just keep back the tears, at victoria she took a cab and finally reached home the servants said her husband was in his study hello he said i didn't expect you tonight i couldn't stay it was awful then she went up to him and looked into his eyes you do love me herbert don't you she said her voice suddenly breaking i want your love so badly i love you with all my heart he said putting his arms around her. But she could restrain herself no longer, the strong arms seemed to take away the rest of her strength, and she burst into tears. "'I will try and be a good wife to you, Herbert,' she said, as he kissed them away. You've been listening to Daisy by William Somerset Maugham. Maugham frequently treated his outcast characters with sympathy and understanding He reserved his scorn for the intolerant, the selfish, and the self-righteous, in short, for the hypocrites. In the world of his stories, human affairs seldom turn out the way people expect. In an unpredictable, irrational world, Mom's stories suggest that life is perhaps met best stoically with skepticism, tolerance, humor, and as much enjoyment as possible of what life offers. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been For Reading Out Loud. If you are enjoying this series, please tell your friends, and let me know what stories and authors you would like to hear. Drop me a line, if you will, at rfigge, that's R-F as in Frank, I-G-G-E, at worcester.edu. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, stay safe, all the best.